All right. How's everybody doing? Would you dim these lights just a little bit? Thanks. Keep going a little more. All right. Perfect. Yeah. Does that make me look like I'm standing in a shadow? Okay. Yeah, as the winter progresses, I know that I'm looking pastier with that light on me. I'll be reflective. So. What? No. No, I actually don't like it in, on my eyes. I feel like it's just too much. So, yeah. All right. Well, the book of Acts. Did anybody read the book of Acts? A little bit? Okay. Yeah. So I love the book of Acts. The, what's been called the fifth gospel or the Acts of the Apostles, the Acts of the Spirit, uh, none of which uh, of those titles were given by the author. Um, it was just a letter written to, of course, Theophilus in conjunction with uh, the Gospel of Luke. So, yeah. Well, let's pray, and we'll get started. Okay. Well, Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you so much, Lord, first of all, for having us together, that we might um, seek your face, that we might be a blessing to one another in fellowship, and Lord, that we might hear from you. And uh, I pray that uh, we would learn more about the book of Acts, about the propagation of the gospel, salvation through the name of Christ, and uh, yeah, that we just have a better grip on the story as a whole. So thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. As you probably know, the book of Acts is the bridge between the four Gospels and the epistles. And have you ever considered what our understanding of the Bible would be like without the book of Acts? Imagine removing all of that historical narrative uh, from it, and then just going from uh, John chapter 21 to Romans chapter 1. Where'd Paul come from? And you wouldn't even know much at all about him as far as his association with the apostles until you came to Peter's epistles. He's the only one that mentions Paul, our beloved Paul. And uh, and then you would hear about all of these journeys from one place to another, kind of, and, uh, but you'd never know how to connect the dots. You wouldn't know where all these people came from, these people that Paul was saying hi to, and, and uh, be very strange. So uh, the, the book of Acts is, is essential. Uh, we wouldn't know really anything about the coming of the Holy Spirit to empower the church uh, in their witness to the world uh, there'd just be this gaping hole in the history of the church. So the, the book of Acts is it's unique, but it's extremely important. We see the, um, the develop, we see the birth and the development of the church. We see the propagation of the gospel. Uh, we see it in a specific way and in order. Um, we do see the, um, the fundamental ways that the church was established. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. And um, 
I can't imagine not having the book of Acts. Be something. So anyway, let's get into our regular routine, uh, and we'll do it, I hopefully, quickly, because I'd like to get into more of the details of the book itself. So as usual, we're going to do authorship, date, special considerations, and then I'm going to give you a brief outline, and then hopefully somewhat to tell you the story of the book of Acts and its uh, historical chronology. Sound good? Yeah. Roger said, are you doing all of Acts tonight? I said, yeah, and he goes, okay. So who, who's our author? It's Luke, okay. And uh, the way that we establish that is through both the external evidence and the internal evidence. Now, we've talked a ton about uh, both when we were in the Gospel of Luke, because if you want to establish authorship to Luke, all you have to do is establish authorship to the, the book of Acts. And so we looked at a lot of the external evidence and the early fathers of the church, very early, all attest to Luke's authorship of the book. Even Marcion, uh, the Gnostic heretic, had attributed authorship to uh, Luke, and so it just seems like a well-established fact uh, in the first um, uh, couple centuries after the apostles. Um, yeah, nearly all of them mention it. And then... Um, Internal evidence, a little more complicated. We've talked about this a little bit. Uh, as we've said before, the author is an anom anonymous person. Uh, what we find is the, the, the plural pronoun we and us uh, coming in and out of the text. And so that's kind of interesting. Uh, they call them the we sections. And here they are. Um, Acts 16, 10 through 17. And that's where Paul is moving uh, in his second missionary journey toward uh, Philippi, but he, it, here it comes into the picture in Troas, as they're leaving Troas. And then it, uh, it disappears again right after Philippi. So it appears that the author was picked up and dropped off. And then he's no longer with them, at least for a while. And then uh, in Acts 20, we find it again, and it becomes a very steady... Um, um, where he's, he's there, and I think it, it seems to me that from Acts 20 on, he may not ever leave. And um, so anyway, so there seems to be, as we have mentioned before, only two uh, mysteriously unnamed persons in the book of Acts. Does anybody remember who they are? You know one of them right off the bat, right? Who's that? Luke. Who's the other one? Anybody remember? Gabe can't say because we, you don't remember since our discussion? Don't, don't admit that publicly. Oh, you do remember. I thought you said you don't. Okay. Titus. That's right. And it is kind of mysterious that Titus is never mentioned because uh, he was with Paul uh, in Galatia. He was with Paul um, uh, in Antioch. He was with Paul when he went to Jerusalem. He was with Paul over the debate over circumcision. He was with Paul, and then suddenly he's not with Paul. And so we'll talk about that a little bit, how we kind of figure some of this out. Um, so the, the plural pronoun, we and us, uh, they are used during Paul's, th uh, I'm sorry, his, his uh, third missionary journey, second missionary journey, Acts 20, uh, that's third, and then uh, 5 through 12, I'm sorry, Acts 20, verse 5 through 21, 18, uh, and, and 
Silas was not actually in attendance during that time. He was in Corinth. Where was Paul during most of that? Where did Paul write 1 Corinthians from? Ephesus. Mm -hmm. And he had sent Titus to Corinth. We'll get into that here in just a sec. So it seems most likely that Luke joined the missionary party when Paul uh, came through Macedonia. Remember, we talked about him being dropped off in Philippi. And in Macedonia, you have uh, Philippi, Berea, and Thessalonica. And he's coming back through that way. And uh, it seems that he picked up uh, Luke again at that point. And we see the pronoun pick up again in Acts 20, verse 4, when Paul was in Corinth, where the author seems to provide a complete list of missionaries who are traveling with Paul, but Titus's name is omitted, even though he was an intricate part of all of this interaction with Corinth, but he doesn't seem to be a companion of Paul anymore. Not in a, a bad way, uh, just he is being used by Paul in different ways than attending him on his way. And so uh, the plural pronoun is present while Titus seems to be absent, which leaves us with Luke, okay? And I think we can be super confident of that is because uh, it's well established that Luke was with Paul in Jerusalem, okay? And we're taking from Corinth the journey back up north through Macedonia to Troas, Ephesus, Tyre, and then Jerusalem where he's arrested. Does that make sense? So it seems that the author is present with him the whole time, whereas Titus seems to be uh, uh, elsewhere. So Titus began as a missionary companion of Paul, but I think that what Paul sensed in Titus over time through tailoring him and discipling him was that he was a leader. And so instead of having him with him, he began to send him to other churches to help them out. And uh, so he sent him to Corinth on two different occasions. And then uh, later on, we know from the book of Titus that he sent him to Crete to set things in order there, appoint elders in every city and and so forth. And so while Luke, on the other hand, he was the steady companion of Paul's, except for that brief time when he left him in Philippi in Acts 16. So, I think when you put all the external and internal evidence together, Luke is definitely our guy. So, Asher, stop entertaining Jamie, okay? He needs to behave in church, all right? Okay, let's move on. The date, uh, let's do this real quick. Uh, The book of Acts ends with the temple still standing, okay? And Paul is, as we know, he's in house arrest in Rome, all right? Uh, All of these things preceded 70 AD. Uh, Also, Paul, of course, had not yet been executed, which was in 68 AD. There's no indication of Nero's persecution beginning, which was in 64 AD. And so I I think it it seems very reasonable to place it just a few years before all those things happened. So maybe 61, 62, maybe even earlier. Uh, but I think, I think that's a safe date. Fair enough? All right, well, let's not talk about it anymore. Special considerations. Um, what was the purpose of the book of Acts, you think? Pretty simple, to document 
the propagation of the gospel and the establishment of the church, yeah. Um, Norman Geiser, he points out some interesting reasons uh, for the writing of the book of Acts, and I think they're important. Of course, he says historically, that's to provide an accurate record of early Christianity, its spread. Uh, Spiritually, as the book begins, to uh, confirm the faith of Theophilus. Okay, both the, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts seems to have that uh, as the, the intended reason. Um, also, legally, it explains Paul's journey in the correct light, showing that he wasn't a traitor to Rome, thus vindicating the charges that were against him. Now, some historians and scholars believe that the book of Acts was in reality written as a legal defense for Paul when he was in prison in Rome. Uh, Now, I think that could have been possibly a a very secondary reason, uh, but I still think that we should stick to what is stated at the beginning of the book. It was written to Theophilus. Uh, Most scholars would say that Theophilus was probably um, from Antioch or something like that. So, uh, polemically, uh, polemically is not typically a word that we use. We use apologetic, uh, but there's the other thing called a polemic. Now, a polemic usually addresses problems within the context of the church, whereas an apologetic addresses problems outside the church. Make sense? Is that easy enough? So, uh, polemically, it showed that Paul was not an apostate from Judaism or the law. Because still, Christianity is somewhat within the framework of Judaism, is it not? At least at that time? Okay. Okay. And then ecclesiastically, or that which pertains to the church, uh, it aimed to show the unity of the Christian movement in the doctrine of the apostles, okay? Uh, Missiologically, or that which was related to missions, it provided the Christian reader with an accurate account of the spread of early Christianity. And then he says apologetically, it showed how God authenticated early Christianity by miracles through the apostles, I love it, throwing all these terms out to you. Dispensationally. um, Now, you don't have to be a dispensationalist to recognize uh, a dispensation, okay? Uh, So by dispensationally, he means that it shows the crucial transition from Judaism to Christianity. God is working differently now in the world because of the introduction of the gospel and grace and so forth. Uh, As John would say, the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So that's a description of two different dispensations in which God was working in different ways at different times. Um, Also, of course, which is fascinating to me, is the book of Acts is a book of sermons. How many guys have studied the sermons in the book of Acts? It's an interesting study. Um, I have shaped all of my sermons, uh, whatever, Um, in evangelism after the book of Acts sermons. And I believe that that is our uh, mandated pattern, what we find in the book of Acts. Uh, Some people don't believe that. Uh, I think they're seriously wrong. Um, They were inspired by the Holy Spirit to preach the gospel in certain ways. And uh, as I've done before in talking about the sermons of the book of Acts, there's five things that are Uh, essentially brought out in all of their sermons. And I believe that we should be preaching those five things. Anyway, um, 
John Wiley, I believe, uh, December 22nd. I'm going to be in Boise, and uh, BJ was going to preach, but John pulled rank as an elder and said, no, I'm going to preach. And so he wants to preach the gospel, so I won't be here, but I'll listen to it and see how he does. So the, the sermons in the book of Acts take on a different nature than the sermons we find from Jesus in the Gospels uh, as they were preached by him. Okay? Jesus' sermons in the Gospels were looking forward to the arrival of the Holy Spirit to impart you know, his salvation as it was secured by his death and his resurrection. The sermons in the book of Acts, of course, they're looking back to what was accomplished by Jesus and what was now available to all. Uh, of course, that gets into the debate of what is old covenant salvation look like versus new covenant, that's for another time um, and perhaps even for another person. There are actually about 12 sermons in the book of Acts, okay? And uh, while there are differences among them, as I said, there is a, a thread through all of them, five threads um, that are important. Uh, of course, there's probably uh, the two most famous sermons in the book of Acts. It's probably Peter's at Pentecost and maybe Paul's in Athens. Um, so, but we begin at Pentecost with Peter's, uh, certainly the most effective sermon, uh, probably in the book of Acts, at least in Numbers. Uh, and then in Acts 3, he preaches in the temple, which gets him in trouble. So in Acts 4, he preaches to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high council, and uh, they tell him to stop preaching. They don't stop preaching, so they end up back with the Sanhedrin and preach again in Acts 5. Another famous servant, of course, would be Stephen's in Acts chapter 7, for which he was killed, he was stoned. That was to the Jewish leaders. Peter preaches in Acts 10 to Cornelius' household, and then Paul comes on the scene in Acts 13. He preaches his first uh, recorded sermon. He had preached before this, but this is the first recorded. That's in the synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia. Now, there's two Antiochs. There's Syria, and there's Pisidia over uh, into Turkey. That is uh, Acts 13. Acts 14, we get into a whole different territory. Paul begins to preach to pagans, which is an interesting study. We'll address it a little bit. Uh, so in, in Lystra, Acts 14 to pagans, and then Acts 17 at the Areopagus in Athens on Mars Hill, he preaches to pagans. And then, of course, probably I would say the most unique sermon in the book of Acts is Acts 20, because it's not to unbelievers, it's to the elders of the Ephesian church. So it's not a sermon trying to reach people uh, with the gospel, but it's, it's a sermon that is preparing them for what's on the horizon. And as Paul says, things are not going to be pretty. In Acts 22, of course, Paul <clears throat> was accused of bringing a Gentile into the temple. So the Jews uh, turns into a mob and uh, the, um, the Roman soldiers save him. They bring him up the stairway and he allows him to address the crowd. It was a great sermon until Paul said that he was sent to the Gentiles. And then they said, away with him. He doesn't deserve to live. And... Um, yeah, I'm glad that that kind of thing's never happened to me in the middle of a sermon. Um, so that was a Jewish mob he was preaching to. And then his, really his last sermon is to Festus, a Roman ruler 
in Acts 26. He does preach to uh, some Jewish leaders while in house arrest in Rome in Acts 28, but there's not really any details too much about the sermon. Um, so anyway, many sermons are mentored. These are the ones with details. Now, I wanted to just bring up real quick this issue of Paul preaching to pagans, to pagans. The two sermons that he preached to pagans is a little bit different. Um, when Paul preached to the Jews, he used a copious amount of Old Testament references, just on and on and on and on. And he even said he was proving that Jesus was the Christ from the law and the prophets. That was always to a Jewish or synagogue crowd, okay? But when Paul was preaching to pagans in Lystra and in Athens, he never quotes the Bible. It's interesting, huh? It's interesting. I think that Paul understood that first, pagans had no knowledge of the Old Testament, and they granted zero divine authority to the Jewish scriptures. I think he understood why bring that up uh, in a way to try to defend this uh, if they don't recognize it as an authority in the first place. Okay, so he didn't. He didn't, he didn't address it. And um, Now, <clears throat> perhaps you've heard that, um, from some critics that when Paul went to Athens that he bombed it, he flopped it because they say, well, he got too philosophical and that was why um, not many people came to Christ. And they say that uh, he implies that in 1 Corinthians when he said, I was determined not to know anything among you but Christ and him crucified. Um, but that certainly doesn't match everything that Paul taught them, but uh, that kind of implies that Paul didn't talk about uh, any of those things with the Athenians, and he did, he did. Uh, and primarily, what you, the, the number one thing that you see come out so strongly in the, the, um, the preaching, the sermons in the book of Acts, is the resurrection. And if you remember in Acts 17, Paul says that God has appointed a day in which he'll judge the world in righteousness according to the man that he has risen from the dead. And the, in the story it says, and when they heard about the resurrection, they mocked. So if Paul bombed it in Athens, when he addressed the resurrection, what should he do, omit it? It doesn't make any sense to me, okay? Uh, I think what makes more sense is that you know, when, we, when Paul was preaching to Jews, we would expect more converts because they had a messianic expectation as promised in their scriptures, okay? But the pagans had no expectation. They had no scriptures to inform them. And so Paul's message was completely new and it was totally unexpected, okay? So I think, I believe strongly that Paul's preaching was spot on when he came to the pagans, yeah. Um, even though with the Jews, like you said, he quoted the Old Testament scriptures. Mm -hmm. Even though he's talking to the, the pagans, he's not quoting Old Testament scriptures, but he's certainly giving them Old Testament truths. Well, in general, I mean, the, yeah. the Day of Judgment, like that's an Old Testament truth, yeah. just as much as it's New Testament. So it's not like, right. even though he's not giving them chapter and verse or saying, this yeah. God said that, I mean, he's still using yeah. the, the, the Word of God. Yeah, he, he makes a, a number of references that imply things that were stated in the Old Covenant, like God not being worshipped with hands and, yeah. and things like that. But what he's doing in that sermon is he's addressing the, the worshipping error 
of the pagans. He's pointing out their sin, and then he's pointing out the trouble that they're in. Well, all the other sermons in the, the book of Acts do the same thing, just in a little bit different way. And um, so I think it's kind of weird. But I actually think that instead of being critical uh, about Paul's preaching in uh, Lystra and Athens, which are almost identical sermons, at least their points, that we should be mimicking that when we speak to pure pagans. Okay. Uh, I've preached to many pagans who had no biblical knowledge at all. And, uh, and because of Paul, I've never felt compelled to quote scripture to them. Okay. But, but just giving them the essential parts of the gospel, bringing the knowledge of sin and uh, things like that. So the gospel is primary. All right. That's, of course, some of that's a discussion for another day. So let's look at the outline. Um, uh, this part here I stole from Norman Geisler. Um, he passed away a couple of months ago, so he can't object to me doing this, I suppose. But um, he says, uh, he does it this way, the formation of the church, uh, chapter 1 through 7, as to the Jews, and then the transition of the church to the Greeks in chapter 8 through 12, and the expansion of the church uh, to the Romans in, in 13 through 28. Um, it's pretty good. Uh, the outline is essentially in accord with what Jesus gave in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when he said, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and then in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The only real difference is Jesus didn't apply uh, chapter and verse to his outline. Yeah. So in chapter 1 through 7, uh, the ministry of the church was confined to Jerusalem, all right, and perhaps uh, some closer cities to Jerusalem. But then following the martyrdom of Stephen in chapter 7, the gospel, because of persecution, spread to Samaria in chapter 8, and then it had a bit of a soft introduction to the Gentile world uh, through chapter 12. Of course, Peter was in Caesarea on the coast at the home of Cornelius. And then others, there's a statement later that says, and some uh, had gone to Antioch and preached to the Hellenists there. And of course, that got the attention of the apostles. That's a later thing. But in chapter 13, uh, when the Holy Spirit separated Paul to the ministry, now he'd been in the faith for a number of years now, uh, but things were kind of weird for Paul. You know, you don't just kill Christians and then instantly enjoy fellowship with them necessarily. And so uh, he had some years in Arabia uh, and, and then he went to Jerusalem and he was basically preaching like Stephen and it, it, it erupted persecution in, in, in Jerusalem again. So what they did is they snuck him out of Israel and they sent him back to his hometown in Tarsus. And he was there for quite some time. And then, of course, Barnabas, Barnabas retrieved him and uh, brought him to Antioch. And in chapter 13, uh, the, the men there were praying together and fasting. And the Holy Spirit said, Separate unto me Paul and Barnabas for the ministry that I have called them to. And then as soon as Paul got on the mission field, it was just an explosion of salvation across um, the Mediterranean world, which is sweet, and, uh, and to which 
at that point on, the rest of the book is dedicated to Paul's preaching for the most part. So what I'd like to do is I want to back up and take a little bit closer look at the book. There's, there's so many details to cover, we can't possibly hit all the cool stuff in the book of Acts, but I think Christians should read the book of Acts yearly because of what's contained in it. So the first thing that's noteworthy about the book of Acts, I think, is the beginning, is the beginning. In Acts 1-3, it says that the apostles were with Jesus for 40 days as he was speaking to them of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So imagine being with the resurrected Christ for 40 days and you had one topic of discussion, the kingdom of God. I think that's important, okay, the kingdom of God. And then after those 40 days of kingdom theology, the disciples had one thing on their mind and one question for Jesus. What do you think it was? As good Jewish boys who believed in the Old Testament. When? We've spent 40 days talking about all this stuff. And Jesus won't stop talking about it. And so there's one thing they want to know. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? To Israel. Yeah. You see, the the last 40 days about the kingdom of God has just filled their brains with all of these Old Testament prophecies concerning the earthly reign of Messiah. Okay? And they just got to know when. And Jesus responded this way in verse 7. It's the most disappointing response ever. It is not for you to know times and seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. You mean you're going to spend 40 days talking to us about this and you're just going to leave us on the edge of our seat? Yep. Just like many of the kingdom parables did. You do not know when your master will come. So be looking. He doesn't relieve that tension at all, does he? He doesn't. I think it's very typical of Jesus. But what he does, he affirms that an earthly kingdom is coming, just as the Old Testament prophets predicted, but the timing, the establishment of the kingdom was not for them to know. And Jesus says, this is a date that my father has determined for himself. Now, when you look in the scriptures, there are a few dates that God has determined for himself. Okay? It is appointed for a man to die. Okay? God has appointed a day on which he'll judge the world in righteousness. He doesn't give us the dates of any of those things, does he? But he says there's a date. And he says it's set according to my, my father's sovereignty. And uh, so we know it's going to happen. We just don't know when. Okay? And that's supposed to, I think, the intent of that is to keep us on our toes. Um, yeah, so look forward to it, but don't worry about its timing. Um, now, what we do know, uh, he says he's done this in his own authority, but also in the Father's authority. He has given authority to Jesus for something, which is then passed on to his disciples. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Therefore, go into all the world, and he gives the Great Commission. Okay, this is something you're to worry about now. So look forward to the kingdom. It's on the horizon. But there's from now until then, that is your primary concern. So we have Matthew 28, 19 through 20. And, um, yep, that's our business, the commission. 
Now, the history recorded in the book of Acts was an absolute impossibility. The commission, it's, it's completely impossible uh, without the arrival of a person. Amen? That's right. Without him, it's just a non-starter. In Luke 24, 49, Jesus spoke of the promise of his father. That's repeated again in Acts chapter 1, verse 4. And the promise of the Father had to do with the coming of the Holy Spirit, not to make us weird, but to empower us, as Jesus says, to be witnesses, okay, and to be, empower us for the ministry. He said this, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, or shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so Jesus told them, stay here in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. Cool stuff. So Jesus, following the commission, he's ascended to his father. But in his place, as we see in chapter 2, the Holy Spirit has descended on the day of Pentecost. And then what we see as a result is that everyone who was in the upper room, they're filled with the Spirit and they speak in known languages and then, of course, Peter's debut uh, in preaching the gospel. And so, pretty amazing. It's, it's pretty fascinating, the whole thing there. Uh, Peter's empowered. The church is born. Now, I think that this whole setting here is essential to our understanding of many things. Um, I, as I said before, I believe it's a pattern of preaching, preaching the gospel for us. We don't preach the same message but we take the outline of the message and the essential things from it. That is for us to identify and to reproduce in our preaching to non-believers, okay? Uh, we'll come back to some of that in a little bit. Uh, we know that about 3,000 people were saved, and then from, uh, at the end of the chapter, we learn basically the primary structure and the function of the church, Acts 2, 42 through 47. We've talked a lot about this at Calvary. Do you guys remember what they are? They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine or teaching. Okay, teaching is always essential. And then fellowship, breaking of bread and prayer, and then worship and thanksgiving. Um, we see a, a kind of an appendix to that in Ephesians chapter 4. And then we see this kind of thing reproduced throughout the book of Acts and the churches. It's all about those things. Um, Apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayer, worship, and thanksgiving. It's good stuff. Okay, and then Acts chapter 3 through 7, uh, the, the apostles were busy still there in Jerusalem growing the ministry of the church, and the church grew to upwards of like 12,000 people. Now, I know a lot of people are opposed to megachurches. You should inform the apostles about that, Okay. I think megachurches are fine as long as megachurches are managed biblically. Those things that we see in Acts uh, chapter 2, verse 42. Okay. And that's one of the reasons we want small groups here. Um, as we talked about some of the sermons, uh, Peter preaches to the people. He preaches to the Sanhedrin, uh, which creates some minor persecution until chapter 7, uh, where we have uh, Stephen's sermon, and then we have the first martyr of the church. In chapter 8, Saul of Tarsus comes to the forefront as this young, zealous Pharisee, okay, who wanted nothing more than to squash 
what he called the way. That was uh, one of the first names given to Christianity, was the way. And he began, it says, to wreak havoc on the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Uh, That's chapter 8, verse 3. That is probably the least that Paul had done. Okay, he tells us elsewhere that in his pursuit of the believers, he became a madman and that he would basically torture Christians until they blaspheme the name of Jesus. And there's indication that he was a part of other executions as well, all of which were illegal. The Jews did not have the authority to execute anyone. They had to leverage the power of Rome to do that. And now, Jesus said, hey, you're going to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, the ends of the world. The, the, the church in Jerusalem was kind of enjoying ministry in Jerusalem. Why would you not? We have 12,000 people in our church. Things are going just fine. But the rest of the directive was not being fulfilled. Well, guess what Paul's persecution did? He threw a grenade into the church, and, and the, the preachers just went flying everywhere. Okay? And so the church began to spread out. Philip went to Samaria. Okay, we know that there was revival there. Um, and then, uh, and what's interesting in that is when the, the gospel went to the Samaritans, they had the same experience as the apostles that are very similar. And so there was a, a second Pentecost, or we might say a Samaritan Pentecost. The Jews had theirs, the Samaritans now have theirs. Uh, so Philip went as far as Philippi, and we know that he, or not Philippi, but Samaria. And then he went down south for a while, then to the coast, then up to Caesarea. But others had spread all the way to Antioch, clear up north into Syria, and some of them began to preach to the Hellenists. So meanwhile, while this was going on, Paul went to the high priest and received uh, letters of permission that he might go as far as Damascus to drag Jews back, not, not Gentiles, but Jews back to Jerusalem and basically have them stand trial. Okay, and uh, of course it's on his way to Damascus, he's confronted by Christ, he's converted to the way, and he immediately starts preaching in Damascus. So the place that he went to arrest people, he's preaching. Uh, As Paul was in Damascus, Peter was preaching up the coast until he found himself led by the Holy Spirit to Cornelius' house, which is a very interesting experience, because it, 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 it has a way of flipping people's theology on its head because these people were filled with the Spirit before they were baptized. Now, some people believe that you have to be baptized to be saved. Uh, Well, how about being filled with the Spirit? So the order is backwards, okay? But as far as we know, the the thief on the cross was never baptized, uh, and he certainly wasn't filled with the Spirit in this way, but Jesus said, today, you'll be with me in paradise. And the simple reason is, is because he believed So, uh, now, I think it's important to note something about this. These were not the first Gentiles that got saved. Who was the first Gentile to get saved in the book of Acts? And he wasn't, it wasn't an apostle that led him to Christ. The eunuch. That's right, by Philippi, or by Philip. So, cool stuff. But it's there at Cornelius' house that we have a third Pentecost. We had a Jewish Pentecost in Jerusalem, we had a Samaritan Pentecost in Samaria, and then we had a Gentile Pentecost in Cornelius' home. So essentially all people groups 
Because remember, the Samaritans are they're, they're mixed breed. So Jews, mix, and Gentiles, everybody. It's interesting. And we could also say it this way. Um, all people groups, according to the sons of Noah, have received the gospel. The eunuch was a son of Ham. The Jews were sons of Shem. And Cornelius was the son of Japheth. All of them. So the gospel has, in one way, just in the first 10 chapters of Acts, been preached to the whole world. It's pretty crazy, huh? All representatives have been, have been reached. And then, uh, because this is all messing with the Jews, uh, Peter goes back and he reports what happened with the Gentiles. The Holy Spirit came upon them exactly the way he did with us, and the Jews just don't know what to do with all this. Okay? But it boils down, he says, it all happened by faith alone, period. It's pretty exciting. Uh, and I think that's why I love the book of Acts is because uh, some of these uh, little pet doctrines that people have, the book of Acts will have nothing to do with it. Uh, it just doesn't agree with some of these things that people have come up with. So I like it. And some people say, well, that was in the book of Acts. It's not that way anymore. And I say, uh, do you have a proof text for that? I'd like to see where that's not the case. Uh, so anyway, in chapter 12, uh, we have the second known martyr of the church, but this happens to be one of the 12, and that's James, the brother of the apostle John. He's murdered by Herod. Um, and then we know that as a result of killing James, it pleased the Jews. And so Herod went after the ringleader, Peter, had him arrested, and then we have that interesting story of Peter being released by the angel, and the whole time Peter's like thinking it's a dream and he's just participating, and then he like comes to himself after he's out of the prison, he's like, I'm out of prison. <laughs> and then he's off and, and reports to the church. Now, during all of those events, uh, Barnabas was sent by the apostles to Antioch because they'd heard that the Hellenists were being reached. And, uh, and while he was in Syria, he decided to go look for Paul, or he's still Saul. And so he went, well, quite a ways away to Tarsus, and he brought him to Antioch, and then that leads us to the final section of the book of Acts, the big turning point, I think, uh, other than Pentecost itself, is chapter 13. Paul and Barnabas are separated by the Holy Spirit, to specifically take the gospel to the Gentile. Now, you remember Jesus said, I have other sheep that I must go to. That's us. And he's going to take the two flocks. He's going to take the ethnic Jew, and he's going to take the Gentile, and he's going to bring them together into one flock uh, so that he can rule over both. And so they go into the Gentile world, their first missionary a church planting expedition, we might say. And um, there's three journeys in chapter, from chapter 13 to chapter 28. And uh, do you guys have a Bible map? If you have a Bible, there might be a Bible map in the back. If you have a phone, you can just Google Paul's missionary journeys and it'll have a highlighted uh, uh, journey for each missionary journey, okay? And if you have that out as you listen to me or as you decide to study the book of Acts, you can go and visit all those places. And the cool thing is, is you can also say, so when Paul gets to, uh, uh, say, Cyprus, 
you can Google images of Cyprus and perhaps the synagogues of Cyprus and you can go into Turkey, um, which is uh, where Paul went after Cyprus and you can look at images of all these cities and in many of them there are um, artifacts from the first, second, third, fourth century, of course, until up to the Muslim invasion, which decimated tons of stuff. But even after that, many things remained. So on the first missionary journey, attended by Barnabas, uh, and half of that journey, or a third of that journey maybe, was with John Mark, took him to, from Syria. Now, mind you, all of Paul's journeys are launched out of Antioch, where the Holy Spirit had separated him from. So they go to Cyprus, and then they go to kind of the central and, and eastern part of Turkey. Uh, it wasn't called Turkey then. Uh, there's a few other names in there. Galatia is a major part of it, not just a city, but a region. And um, yeah, following this expedition, uh, which I love, they've made it back to Antioch. Some uh, believing Pharisees came up to Antioch. And they began to tell the Gentiles there that they have to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. This about put Paul over the edge. And so him and Barnabas and Titus, they went down to Jerusalem in chapter 15. And that's where what some have called the first church council. Uh, I think that that's a little misleading as if, you know, the, the church councils of the Catholic church and so forth. Um, it was like a part of that or in, in some sequence of that. That's not really accurate. Uh, but there was a doctrinal issue that needed to be settled right away. And the sad thing to me is that it still hasn't been settled, even though when you read Acts 15, it seems to be extremely definitive. Do the Gentiles have to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses? And there was a unanimous no. No. Okay, that's the old covenant. It pertained to the Jews as the constituents. Okay? But with the blood of Christ, the changing of the covenant, Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31, as we've looked at in the book of Hebrews, that is gone. It's been made obsolete. And in its place, as Jeremiah says, a new and better covenant, better promises, better everything. Okay? No. You have a covenant that was committed to you as, as the new covenant people. Stick with that covenant. Okay? And so after all that's uh, at least tried to be settled, um, it's interesting, is because even though the, the, the Jerusalem church elders and apostles had, had settled this issue, the Judaizers began to follow Paul after this from city to city and trying to destroy the gospel of grace that Paul was preaching. And so we have the book of Galatians. We have parts of Romans talking about it. We have parts of Colossians talking about it. Just keep it simple, okay? New covenant stuff. So then uh, Paul goes on his second missionary journey. He visits all the churches that he planted on his first journey, uh, but then he makes his way to Troas, to Macedonia, and then Greece. But when he's in, uh, in the, the central part of Turkey, he picks up a young man. Does anybody remember who he is? Timothy, Okay. And then makes his way uh, to Troas, and that's where we get this plural pronoun, we. And that's where the author finally joins uh, Paul and the, the group there. Yep. So they're in Greece. Paul then sailed to Corinth, uh, from Corinth to Ephesus. 
then to Tyre, and he visited Jerusalem again. Okay? Then after Paul returned to Antioch, he embarked on his third mission, which took him to Ephesus for an extended period. He kind of stopped there, and then he was gone before. But now he's there for about three years. And then he made his way north to Troas. He wants to go back to Corinth. Remember, he wrote 1 Corinthians while he was in Ephesus. And it is the most scathing letter in the New Testament. The things that you discover that's going on in Corinth, it's like, are you kidding me? Uh, The idolatry and the sexual sin and the arguing and all of that stuff. So Paul sends them this letter, and it's, it's the strongest rebuke. Even at the beginning of the letter, Uh, It's like the only church he doesn't give thanks for. He's so upset. But then after he sends it, he's really concerned about how they've responded. So what he does is he sends Titus over there, and he hasn't heard back from Titus, but Titus was supposed to meet him in Troas, and Paul goes to Troas, and he even expresses to the Corinthians, he says, "I I was getting troubled in my heart because Titus didn't meet us there. And so we decided to sail on to Macedonia, Philippi, Berea, Thessalonica. And there they met up with Titus. And Paul expresses how how his heart was filled with joy, not only in seeing Titus, but also that Titus had reported repentance in Corinth. So now Paul is just elated. And then from Macedonia, he sends Titus back to Corinth to get the collection ready uh, for the poor church in Jerusalem. Because he didn't want to get there and go, hey, you guys promised that you'd have all this together. And so Titus goes and just gets them ready for that. And then Paul makes his way back uh, all the way to Corinth. And then there's a riot, which was no strange thing to Paul. And uh, so he makes his way back up north again to Macedonia, to Troas. And he comes to Ephesus. And he didn't want to go into Ephesus because I think Ephesus was... Like Philippi is very special to Paul. He knew he'd get stuck there. So what he did was he stayed on the beach and he called for the elders to come down and talk to him. And we have that very pastoral exhortation from Paul. Uh, Acts 20 is an important uh, section of scripture to me as a pastor. And um, so there he does that. And then he makes his way back to Jerusalem. What happens at Jerusalem this time? He starts another riot. Gets himself arrested. uh, Eventually finds himself in prison in a Roman prison in Caesarea on the coast. Uh, But there it's interesting. He's given opportunity to preach to uh, Roman governors and leaders. Uh, I love his interaction with um, Felix. After reasoning with him about righteousness and judgment to come, Felix was afraid. I love that. Making the Roman governor tremble. That's good stuff as the sinner ought to tremble, okay? Uh, And then, of course, uh, the book of Acts concludes with Paul being shipped to Rome because he made his appeal to Caesar, and uh, and he could as a Roman citizen, so they send him. Uh, Is it an easy trip to Rome? Not so much, but he finally gets there, and, uh, and this is what I think is very interesting. Uh, the book ends where it began with a discussion about the kingdom of God and the propagation of the gospel. Interesting, huh? Yeah, I don't think it's a coincidence. Um, Now, is the book of Acts the end? 
The ending is like a non-ending, if you've read it. It's like, and Paul was preaching the gospel and rented a house, and, and, and it's over. And it's like, well, thanks, Luke. But then we know from Paul's other epistles that he was released, and then he went about preaching the gospel. He appointed Titus in Crete, and then, of course, he was arrested again, and from which we get some of Paul's other letters, and then knowing that he's going to die, and, uh, and he's finally beheaded by uh, Nero, we believe, under his orders. Uh, but that's really not an ending in itself. Uh, I don't think. Uh, Acts records the first 28 chapters of church history, but not all of church history. Amen? Yeah. Uh, so there's something noteworthy about, I think, this sort of non-ending. Uh, the kingdom has not yet been established on the earth, and so the Great Commission still stands. It's sort of what Jesus said, right? You guys were interested in the kingdom. The timing of it is not for you to know, but the commission is. Get to the commission, and our commission will come to an end when the king returns. So, what should we be doing? We should be doing what the apostles were doing. And that Christ will relieve us when he brings his scepter with him. Amen? And I'm all for that. So we preach the gospel until the king comes back. That's all I got. So go home and read the book of Acts. It's usually not a one-sitter, unless you've got some time. It's pretty long. So, okay, any questions? Asher, do you have a question? No, okay. Have Jamie answer it, that's right. That's right. All right, well, let's, let's stand up and we'll pray. Um, so next week we'll be in Romans. Now, I've been thinking perhaps that we'll spend more than one evening with Romans. Um, yeah. So. so read Romans. Outline it. So I remember the first time I taught Romans, uh, I almost memorized the whole book word for word. And, uh, um, and I don't have that anymore. I guess that comes with age, but uh, the outline and the verses by verse, I have the outline stuck in my head. And it, well, I don't think it'll ever go away. It's just, it's there. So, so we'll talk about it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for um, not just your word, Lord, but the historical narrative of the book of Acts that... Obviously, Lord, when, when all authority was given to you and that commission was passed on, that as you said in Acts chapter 15, that your disciples would go and they would bear fruit. There's nothing stopping what you have set in motion. And so we thank you for that. And we pray, Lord, that our hearts would be bent on what your heart is bent on. And that's the preaching of the gospel, the establishment of your church, and ultimately your glory. So Lord, help us to be uh, busy doing those things, Lord. And so thank you. Thank you for my church family. And I just pray that you'd bless and encourage them and that you'd bring us back together safely, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>